HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Big Green Egg, the world's largest producer of ceramic charcoal grills, and also by Springer Mountain Farms, over 300 family farms raising birds in Georgia's Blue Ridge Mountains. Learn more at BigGreenEgg.com and SpringerMountainFarms.com. To the Heritage Radio Network. We are live today at day two of the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are broadcasting to you from the Heritage Radio TP on the grounds of the Culinary Village at the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. It's a beautiful, coolish, sunny Saturday, and we are going to be doing a special edition Grape Nation at the uh, food festival. So our guest is a panel of very illustrious wine people, if I may say so. So let me just go around and do a quick introduction. We have with us Thomas Rivers Brown. Thomas is an award-winning winemaker and sought-after consultant in uh, Napa, California. He won't tell you this, but he's got multiple 100-point wines under his belt. And he's also a native of Sumter, South Carolina, so he's sort of a local boy, and I'll get him in trouble because he refers to Sumter as the armpit of South Carolina. So, so you deal with that for the rest of the weekend, all right? Shots fired. And then we have... Well, listen, I live in New Jersey, and that's arguably, you know, the quintessential armpit. So, um, We have Morgan Calcote. Morgan is the general manager and beverage director at Fig Restaurant. And I wanted Morgan to be here because Fig was just nominated for a 2017 James Beard Award for Outstanding Wine Program. So they're doing it right. And, and they've received other James Beard Awards for chef service and all of that. We have Rick Rubel. Rick is sort of a legend in Charleston when you talk about wine. Even though he's not an old guy, he's been around and knows this stuff you know, better than anybody. He heads up the wine program at the Charleston Grill here in Charleston. 
He was, I think, the 2016 Charleston City Paper Best of Sommelier. Yes. So unless they announce the new one, you're the reigning champion. The reigning champion. I got the reigning champion right here. And, you know, to make mention, Charleston Grill has uh, received numerous James Beard nominations and awards, too. We're up against Femi for... There you go. And my last guest is Femi. Femi, help me with the last name. Oh, Darren. Oh, you're Darren. Oh, Don't worry. Femi works, I can't get with right R- eight. Femi works with Rick at the Charleston Grill. He's an advanced sommelier, and he's a level three sommelier, and very passionate guy. If you walk around the streets of Charleston, there's a campaign promoting the food festival, and Femi is in one of the ads. He's one of the poster boys in a very hip poster. You'll know what I'm talking about after I told you. Um, and it's a very sweet story how Femi and Rick are working together and how Femi got into the business. So I want to welcome all you guys to Heritage Radio Network. And I'm going to slip in a special edition version of the Grape Nation. All right, so welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming. So I want to ask this first to Rick and to um, Morgan and to Femi. I asked the other guys, what does the Charleston Wine and Food Festival mean to Charleston? Uh, to me, it's, it's fantastic. It's bringing people like Thomas to town and just having a you know, four- or five-day festival and party after hours. You know, some of the after-hour ev- events are fantastic, but it kind of showplaces Charleston, and I really think it helped put Charleston on the map as far as it, the culinary scene that it is today. So it's... The it's culinary scene is here. This yes. really shows it all. And off. I think the festival, they kind of grew up together, the Charleston's reputation and the festival. And also, Rick, you know, it's a good time to point out, you are on the board and been on the board for the Charleston Wine and Food Festival for a few years. Until they kick me off, yes. Tell me what that entails. I mean, what do you have to do? Just you, you know, you eat go to a, a lot few, of food, drink a lot of wine, and then go home? Go to a few meetings and just, you know, keep an eye on things. And uh, But uh, Jillian, the new... Uh, the director that's been here for uh, three years now has been absolutely fantastic at taking it from its origins and taking it to a whole new level to the festival that we see today. I mean, I remember being at the first one, what, 12 years ago, and it was basically a tent about five times the size of this, so not too much over for the a whole festival? festival? Well, for the, the final party. And, right. And that was about it. And where it's come has been pretty extraordinary yeah i walked through the night of the kickoff party and it was a pretty big impressive deal and i think to your point one of the nice things about the festival is the opportunity to bring people like thomas rivers brown in there's thomas is special i don't want you to be upset but there's a slew of winemakers down here but it's a very selective group of people and thomas is here um he had an opportunity to showcase his wines, which are Rivers Marie. We did a tasting, which I was lucky enough to attend. And Thomas, you're doing a dinner tonight at Five Church. Correct. Yeah, Tell me a, a little about that. The chef, the food, the wine pairing, what's going on? Um, so tonight, um, 7 o'clock, I think it's about 60 people. And we're going to do some library wines for Rivers Marie. So we don't have a big library. Usually the way our business works is if you have money and we have a bottle, we have You're a transaction. It out. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So our, our tiny little library is being raided for this dinner tonight. Um, library for us means back to 09 and I was going to say, let's not go too crazy here, right? <laughs> so we're going to do, uh, we, we specialize, we kind of focus on three varietals, Sonoma Coast, Chard, Pinot, and then Napa Cab. So we're going to do a little bit of everything. 
from the best vineyards that we have in the library. So while you're on that, let's talk about that. Um, you do a lot of cabs, vineyard designates. You have a passion for Pinot. Um, and there's an interesting story with the Suma Vineyard. And you do a few shards on a limited basis. So just walk me through quickly the cabs, the Pinots, and the well, shards. I, I, so I currently make wine for 40 different wine projects. And uh, 40 different wine projects. And I don't think I could name them all. Um, Schrader, Maybach. How long is this show? Right. And I got to get you out of here. So so talking about. You're late because I'm bragging about you. Let's just talk. Well, let's just talk about the wines that we own. Um, So for Rivers Marie, we we focus all of our Chardonnay and Pinot and Occidental. So it's true Sonoma Coast um, with Suma and Terriot being our two flagship vineyards there. Um, and then we, of course, do some Napa Cab. Um, certainly helps pay the bills. And it's uh, sort of what we do best and what we did first. So you said that at the tasting, and you said it here. And, I, I mean, you make a heck of a Napa Cab, like you said, for 40 people. But your real passion, is it Pinot Noir just because of the grape and it's finicky and you really have to vint it? Yeah, I mean, we, I, I think... Wow, I could really get myself into trouble on this show. Um, <laughs> you, I think a lot of wine drinkers start with bigger, bolder, more forward-style wines, and they move uh, up or down the chain, however you want to describe it, to something that's a little broader and a little more complex, a little more delicate. Um, so for us, uh, we, we drink a little bit of everything, but more, the common thread is we've decided we really like wines with age. Right. So digging deep into the, the, the current craze for late 60s, early 70s Napa cabs, um, going with some older Burgundies, champagne with some age on it. Genevieve and I have a lot of older Barolo and Barbaresco. Right. So it's wines with a little more finesse, whether right. they are finessed when they're young or finessed with 20 years on them. Right. That's really the goal for what we like to make right. and also what we like to drink. So I, I think this would be a good question for Femi, Rick, Morgan. We'll jump in and then I'll end with Tom. Thomas, tell me how you think wines in Napa have changed. I mean, years ago, they would make these big, unctuous wines that Robert Parker would score, you know, 95, 100. Things have become more restrained. Have you guys seen in Napa, because I know Charleston Place is fairly big, you know, Napa presentation. Tell me what you think the changes in Napa have been, if there have been any, and what they are. Femi, you start. Uh, you know, you know, it's interesting you, you bring that up. You know, I, I wouldn't, you know, adamantly claim that I've truly experienced, you know, the great range uh, that is Napa. You know, Rick is constantly uh, uh, kind of showing me, the, you know, the, the history, the timeline, you know, from, you know, tasting older vintages of like Livington Moffat 87 or something that we had, you know, maybe a year ago or so. And, uh, you know, he talks to me constantly about the older Napa, you know, when the change happened. It's funny. You know, I'm the, one of the few guys the, who owns <laughs> right. Moffat. You know. And it was pretty – I opened yeah. like a 98, which is right, not a yeah. great vintage. You know, it was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Or like, you know, I think, you know, the, the, he talks about the Mandavi and the change of style there and the fight between Park and such. So, you know, I think that, uh, you know, from my point in, you know, being a younger generation and coming to wine in the time that I came into wine, you know, I'm starting to think almost the reverse, you know, as opposed to the progression, which I think is Rick's generation where they saw – one style that they uh, become accustomed to and they became richer, more opulent, and then now we're starting to see, you know, uh, different diversity as far as what Napa is, and I think that's, you know, a new kind of learning experience. Is also, you know, trying to know what is Napa today, then also, you know, have that context of speaking about what it was before and where it's come from. Right, Rick. What 
discernible changes? No, it's uh, it's been pretty huge. I mean, I, I've been in the business long enough where I would cut my teeth on the old Behringer private reserves and I could get my hands on some 85s, 86, 87, some of the greatest Cabernets I've had. And then I also remember the wines going bigger and bigger. And that was all the rage for me growing up is seeing these bigger, fully-bodied wines. And then I distinctly remember what was it, the 2001 Robert Mondavi Reserve that came out got panned because it was such a, right. you know, a different style. And um, But now that style is what's in, right? The right. Kathy Corzin, more kind of restrained style. Uh, but, you know, wine, fashion, they kind of come and ebb and flow and, you know, it's but fun I, to see I them would, all for me. I would bet dollars to donuts you have a customer client base that comes into your place that wants... You know, that Richard, early 2090 you know, big cab. The still at my place? All, yeah. That's mostly what people Yeah, which, you know, Morgan, you have a smaller list, I'm guessing, because I know you have a huge Definitely, list. Definitely, yeah. And it's, it's a, a curated list. Um, do you serve Napa cabs there? We do. Um, we actually uh, have uh, one of the Kathy Corison's wines on the list right now, and I think that you know maybe more representative of the restrained style uh, of the valley in that regard. And um, that's where we find that our our food is is really well complemented by wines of, of some really um, you know more restraint typically, uh, just stylistically, uh, and that's that's what we seek out for our list because we do have. Uh, limited, uh, limited space, limited, uh, you know, right. number of lines on the page, and we want to make sure that the food is, is kind of highlighted rather than you. You have a chef-driven restaurant, absolutely, and yeah. I'm assuming there's thought towards the wines pairing well with the menu and the seasonality. So the list reflects that, as you said. Definitely, um, that's something that I, I think about with every wine that I taste. And as much as I, um, you know, have a, a pretty broad appreciation personally for for the world of wine, and am, am willing to entertain, you know, uh, wines of all different styles and regions, uh, I find myself for the restaurant list uh, looking to the food and to the season we're representing on the menu at a given time, and finding wines that uh, really make those dishes shine, really kind of um, can lift those to the fore, right. um, and, and can offer value sometimes too uh, I think that's important uh, with with dining too is to find a wine that can knock your socks off or you know give you a little uh, head scratcher kind of moment and and find something that doesn't really you know a, a little later the in the yeah. show I want to get into with you and Femi and Rick sort of what's hot now and what's changing but we'll, we'll get to that in a few minutes now Thomas you sort of epitomize all sides because you make those you know, terrific, full-bodied, cult Napa cabs, and you yourself are making wines that are somewhat restrained. But that being said, what what has sort of changed in Napa in your mind? You know, you've been there a while. You've been making wines. What's the most obvious, noticeable thing? So I, I think Rick nailed it. I mean, the, fa- the, the style fashions change quickly. Um, one of the issues that we see with that is anytime you set out to chase something, you're going to be wildly unsuccessful. Um, for us, you know, there's a, there's these there's this division in Napa. There's folks that won't pick, you know, below 28 bricks, and there won't there are folks that won't pick above 22 bricks. All right, it, just it, for our listeners, bricks is the sugar level, which affects alcohol too. Right. So there's a conversion. It's basically bricks times 0. 0.6 is potential alcohol. And people were pushing it. Was that your people point? People push it, or they'll purposely pick 
uh, below a certain level, and I think certain vintages, either one of those approaches, you're going to hit a home run, but to do that as a formula is a huge mistake. Right. So we're, we're hoping we see more people that are just making the best possible wine from a given site in a given vineyard in vintage. Right. Um, so that's really the goal. We, we, for us personally, no, nothing by formula. All, all playing defense and you know flexing right. by, based on year. Right. But you... When you make wine for 40 different clients, like you say, obviously the wines are reflected by the terroir. I mean, there's different soils at different vineyards, different exposures, wind and all of that stuff. But how do you, how do you differentiate the style? I know you can, and I know the client has an idea, but you know, how is it that all the wines don't taste the same separate of the terroir. So for us, I mean, it sounds weird, especially that someone would pay me for doing nothing, but uh, right. <laughs> the, le- the, the less we do, the more the wines differentiate themselves. Less intervention, you're yeah, saying. Yeah, so for us, I mean... It, it's, it's the fruit. It's, it's, yeah, especially for a bolder style, people just assume there's more manipulation. So for us, it's no yeast inoculation, no mallow inoculation, no acid adds, no fining, no filtration, no enzymes, no RO, like all these things that are kind of dirty secrets that people of all different styles are doing. Anytime you do something, there's always the intended consequence, but there's always a bunch of unintended consequences. And those unintended ones are the ones that make the wines more homogeneous. But if I'm like some rich Silicon Valley client and I bought property and I said, Thomas, listen, I want you to be my consultant. And you say, well, I'm too busy. And I flash the money in front of you and you say yes. And I say to you, I want you to make a big, bold, unctuous red Cabernet that tastes like cough medicine. Will you do that? Um, that, well, that's a very complicated answer. So to go back on one of the first things you said was these rich people coming to the Valley, you, ne- you never say no if you're in my position. Okay. You just give them a different number and let them say no. Um, because these are <laughs> folks that aren't used to hearing the word no. But the, the answer is if you have a site that could give this massively rich, concentrated, dense wine, and we think it's the best expression of that site, we'll do it. If, but if it doesn't, you'll discourage. If not, it's like, hey, well, dude, no, this isn't the vineyard to do that. We, we won't work together. Right. Um, we've, we've had, we have a couple amazing clients. When we sat them down, I could tell what their personal preferences were. And we said, look, this site is not going to produce that. So and going credit, in, you have a sense of where yeah, it's to their credit, go. They're like, okay, let's just make the best wine we can. Right. I want to talk to you guys, Morgan, Femi, and Rick, about the role of a sommelier and sort of how it ties into the winemakers and all of that. Um, I had Kevin Zraeli on as a guest six months ago, and he said, when I started in the business, there were five, six sommeliers in New York. Now you go to a restaurant, and there's five, six in one restaurant. You know, so there's restaurants were pavilions. Chef became, chefs became rock stars. You know, now sommeliers are rock stars, which is a great thing because wine is a great thing to advocate and all of that. But I think people get intimidated when they see a big wine list and they're not that informed. You know, they, they get pushed away. What's your role? And we'll, we'll go down the line. What's your role? And, you know, how do you sort of dispel that a little, Femi? You know, when somebody comes in and you could sense they're not that experienced, you know, what do you what do? You, do? you know, for me... That's the the critical position is trying to dispel that fear, trying to make them feel comfortable. Um, you can see that a lot of times they just don't want to talk to the sommelier at, at all because there's that kind of intimidation. And I just want them 
So I'll be more jovial, more joking, more smiling. And I just want them to get what makes them happy. And it, for me, it doesn't matter. I'm going to put forth a collection of wines that I think are fantastic at a, many different styles. And to me, it's just picking through the wines that I think it's just matching. Matching something that they love at a price point that they're comfortable with that's going, going to exceed or blow away their expectations. And if they walk away happy, you know, that's the name of the game. So you, you probe a little into, you got to open them up first of all, because oh, yeah. you said they're intimidated. My favorite is, what do you like to drink? What have you drank? Right. What have you had lately? Those type of things. And what are you eating? And so I, I want to put that into the mix and find out how important is that pairing. Um, they're going to have several different dishes. So do, you, do they want something down the middle that's going to kind of go with right. everything? Do they want to have with a an big... eye towards the food? Right. Yeah. Now, Femi, you don't uh, you don't intimidate people and say, "Listen, here's what I like, and this is what you're no, drinking." No, 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 no. So <laughs> nobody not, likes a guy. I'm like not going to veer too so much off the road as there. As a sommelier, I mean, you're, you're, you want to be an educator I, too. Uh, yeah, you know, and I'm not going to veer too much off the road because I'm sitting here next to my sensei, right? So. Um, <laughs> No, but um, no, but you know, I I absolutely side with Rick on that, and you know, I come from the experience of having a strong, keen interest in music. You know, I used to DJ around town, and I kind of approach mu- uh, wine the same way. And you know, I think that my job is simply to be a part of the experience and to help you get ultimately what makes you satisfied or happy. And if you know, there are people that you know want to try something new and different and they're looking for that experience. And there are, there are people that are looking for something, an idea they have in their head. And they just want you to kind of meet that expectation. And it's the same thing with music. You know, if you have somebody that likes, you know, earth, wind, and fire, right? You know, like what are you gonna put them onto? Are you gonna put them on some sly stone? Are you gonna put them onto the gap band? You know, I don't know. But you know, it's a conversation that you have and you know I think that number one, everyone not everyone's a huge music geek, but I think people know what they like when they hear it. You know, it's the same thing with wine. And, uh, you know, I, I try to just kind of do that same experience where it's like, I understand these genres. I think that's why blind taste is important because I think it's also important to understand why themes are similar, why someone that drinks, you know, Pinot Noir might possibly be interested in drinking some Sicilian Neroso, you know, if it's a really great producer in a right nice. vintage, you know. Like, it's, it's important to be able to make those connections because then you can not go too far off the road, but give them something that's similar and also unique and interesting. I don't try to do anything that's, you know, out of their territory. I'm not going to give you, you know, uh, NWA if you tell me you like, you know, John Mayer. <laughs> right. You know, it's, it doesn't make sense, you know, so. Right. Morgan, what? <laughs> um, you have a floor full of people that are interested in drinking some great wine. How do you kind of break through to them yeah. without intimidating them? Totally. Um, so we start with uh, with educating our, our servers. Um, we start with a 100-question questionnaire. We have a simple Q&A that lasts 45 minutes, and then we go into, no, it's, um, it's a, um, we start with the service team. Um, I, I am one person, and we see more than one table in a night, and um, and our service staff is, is keenly interested in, in the subject of wine as it relates to great service, and so they're, um, they're knowledgeable, and we give them the tools to have uh, the answers a lot of the times when our uh, guests are asking them, and so I think that strips away a layer of kind of, um, of hesitancy, of, of you know, uh, perceived pretension or, or um, you know, uh, an air of not being able to ask a question comfortably. Your server is there to take care of you 100%. Right. Um, so having them be able to field lots of the questions has been a really great tool for us to get um, some great wines on the table uh, within their comfort zone or introducing them to the things they've never heard of or things that are slightly outside of their comfort zone that they end up really being appreciative of. 
Um, and I think, you know, to that end, it's enthusiasm and um, in your kind of confidence in what you have on the list and how it's going to elevate an experience. Right. Um, and just kind of taking that and really building uh, a relationship with the guest and, and finding out what it is that they like and, um, and, and like, you know, Femi said, finding something comparable that, that feels comfortable to kind of take a, a little step outside of the comfort zone without, you know, being pushed or, uh, or intimidated into something that they weren't really looking for to start with. Right. Uh, Rick, this question's for you. What do you do with a guy like me who's a big pain in the ass, thinks he knows his shit, and tells you what you should be doing. And you know you got how many thousands of bottles and been doing this how long? What do you do with a guy like me? I just get you what you want. I Is that it? So absolutely. You just don't, don't fight it, join it? You know, I, I'm not a young man anymore. I'm <laughs> kind of crossed that road. I'm not a young man. I've, I've, already, <laughs> I've already made those mistakes where I thought, oh, I'll put you on what you really want, and gone down that path, and you see it in their eyes. Right. It's not worth it. If you know, if they've got a favorite brand that they want, you know, I've tried to talk them out of something else and show them something that they really, really would love. That's the answer. They it doesn't work. It's already in their head, that's the greatest wine. And I've realized who am I to dispel that magic for them? That, that, you know, I'm going to take them down that road. If they really want my opinion and they want to try something out new, I'm happy to go that route and we'll talk that game anytime. But if this is your favorite wine, I'm going to keep you. I'm going to keep you on that if, if you're determined to stay there. It makes sense. Yeah. Now, Thomas, when you want to get your wines out there, I mean, you work through a distribution chain. Uh, you work with. Uh, restaurants. I mean, do you spend time with sommeliers? Do you spend time? Uh, do you do tastings? I mean, ha- is do you have time to personalize? You um, know your wines. We, we do now. We uh, we made the mistake early on, and I, only in hindsight did I realize it was a huge mistake of selling only via mailing list for right. many years. And so, you know, it, there, it would be a mixed case, and it would disappear into a thousand different people's cellars, and no one would ever see the wine again. So we began to realize the important distribution, the importance, and now the importance of also hitting the road and meeting folks like on this panel and explaining the story. And people like to put a face to the name, and people like to know that they're not buying some asshole's wine. And, I mean, all, all that kind of stuff I think is really important because you want that personal connection. When, when you really boil it down, all the millions of wines in the world that we all get to taste – there's not a lot of difference between the top 10,000 right. or something. They're all well-made so and where's, they're where, Yeah, where's the point of differentiation? So it's nice to put a personality to all these folks that are right. here. So just out of curiosity, early on, were you able to sell through your wines through the mailing list? I, I still have the folder of... Uh, our, our first release was two vintages, and people had to fax their order in, <laughs> which I, for the younger folks here, we Did can explain what that means. Did you have that rolling paper fax, or you had the regular paper? We had regular paper, 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 and then I key, I punched in people's credit card numbers on my phone. <laughs> um, I, so it took a long time. We got 42 you know, I've orders. On, I've been on your mailing list from the beginning, and you could check, Genevieve. But it, it like takes forever to get that stuff. Yeah, so we, we just had a really short release. Um, so five of the ten wines sold out in an hour. Did it? Even with one bottle allocation. So and to the original point, it, it makes sense and it, it's important to carve out a little wine to bring it in front of restaurants, sommeliers. All, always. You never want to disappear out of the market. And these are our biggest advocates uh, you know, at this festival. And so we want to make sure we take care of them right. first and everyone else gets taken care of second. I would love to jump in for a quick Please second. Do. Like he'll do, this is a rock star of wine, 40 different wineries. And uh, 
I can't even count how many accolades. It, it's, it's amazing. But he took time out to come to my staff and do a little, you know, little seminar for them about what he's doing in the vineyard and taste wines, crack it, crack it open for them, show them. Goes a long way. Oh, my gosh. For 18 people, yep. my staff and this rock star has got time for them. So that's huge. I'm going to ask you guys a question, and I think the range of the answer is really going to vary, but I'm curious because of where things are today. And the question is how social media has affected, you know, wine, how you use it, you know, what you do. And I'll give you an example, and maybe I'm wrong, but, you know, when I do the show, I try to promote it on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and all that. And I'm trying to find Thomas's like Instagram page, and I don't think you have one or something. Uh, I, it's it's one month old. It, oh, so it we is? just started. So I'm like, well, you know, social media is a great thing to be part of a business, and I can't find this guy or whatever. So Femi, start with you. Social media, I, I think, has changed the wine business in a lot of ways. For sure. Tell me, tell me your sure. feelings. How um, do you use it? Um, well, I, I think there are several ways you can kind of look at social media. But I think the main focus, particularly for some ways or people that are interested in wine, is that, you know, you get to find out what other people are excited about, and you also get to find out if people are, if your palate is aligned with others, you know. They're, so you you're might, talking about discovery. Yeah, discovery, You use it to sure. see what's going on. Absolutely. It opens up the world for you. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. You know, I think that, you know, even for Charleston, That's an unselfish we're starting answer. to see. We're starting a lot to see. of people will say, you know, I tweet... 20 times no, a day or no, whatever. No, I want to know. You know, I mean, yeah. particularly, I, I, I'm, I'm a fan, and I simply want to find out what other people are drinking and what to keep out, keep an eye out for. You know, uh, I think, Charleston, we're starting to see a lot of exciting producers come in. Um, you know, my friend David McCarris is bringing in some great wines. Um, but these, a lot of these wines are wines that I had read about and seen and, you know, not seen the market. And I'd ask Rick about it. I'd say, Rick, have you tasted this wine before? And he goes, yeah, but it doesn't come into the market. So I think it's interesting and good for people to be able to find out what's exciting, what's fun. Um, and that's and what, what I use social media personally? for. what about personally? I mean, will yeah, you... I mean, yeah. I mean, if you can, if you can use it, I mean, if you can use it to get people excited about wine and you can use it to kind of diffuse, um, you know, whatever cloud has been floating as far as, you know, getting into wine. I think that for a lot of people, there has been some sort of a bridge that they felt like they need to cross neck bridges, essentially education. You talk to anyone about, you know, drinking wine and they're like, oh, I don't go into a wine shop because I don't really know that much. So they want to go to a grocery store instead. And I think it's important to kind of put out that vibe out there that it, it, right. it's, it's all good, man. You know, Rick, come and enjoy. Are you using it at all? No, I'm virtually. You're like undisc- a Luddite. Yeah. You know what a but, Luddite is? But I live vicariously through Femi. Through Femi. So he'll talk about these new wines that that he's seeing on Instagram or through the networks and so I'll find out through him so to me it's important to keep tasting with uh, the young guns coming up and right. find out what's hot and that but it's just chop wood carry right. water keep working I you know there's only so much time in the day so right. that's true I leave that to Femi he's great at it and I try to absorb as much as I can Thomas I've, I'll come to you last but Morgan how how do you use social media? Do you use it for the restaurant, for the wine program? Do you use it personally? Um, so uh, probably somewhere in between uh, Femi and Rick in terms of uh, use and activity. I um, I am on Instagram, but I uh, but I don't really kind of do. A, I know I'm uh, virtually unfindable um, <laughs> <laughs> because I don't I don't do a lot of kind of posting of my 
my own activities. I use it to kind of for discovery, like you said, to kind of see uh, what's coming around. Um, you know, I follow winemakers and and some personalities and um, and vineyards, and I kind of use that as a as a tool for learning and finding things or uh, seeking things out. Um, but uh, but as far as the kind of self promotional purposes, I I. Yeah, not enough hours in the day. <laughs> now, Thomas, yeah. do you feel obliged to a shift? Like, it, it, it's something you haven't been doing a lot of, but if you sort of wade into it, it's something that you have your own brand. Um, yeah, it's a real double-edged sword as a producer. Sometimes less is more. So, I mean, you, you're trying to kind of develop this cult of scarcity, and uh, maybe those days are starting to wane. But you, you have to be careful. And uh, this, this sort of applies my... Uh, father-in-law told me once, not not everyone's excited for you that you have a Ferrari in the driveway. Yeah, you, so you have to be, be careful, careful what you that. post. Because <laughs> it, it, it used to be your kids, now it's showing off your Ferrari. Yeah, but also you know, people are like, who cares? You get five cases of Solos in the mail. Some people aren't excited for you; they're they're pissed off. So <laughs> when the comments say "I hate you," then you realize you've posted the wrong thing. I could tell you one observation I had, and I just want you guys to respond to it. There was a time not that many years ago where a small handful of people controlled the ratings and the interest in wine, whether it was Robert Parker or Berghand or whoever these guys were. And they had newsletters. They were online. I think social media has democratized. It's very peer-to-peer. You know, like Femi, you said, you know, you go on and you see guys you know, not necessarily in person. They're talking about wines, a region and all that, and that gets you to try it. I think it's become less about ratings, less about more of a few people, and more democratized where there's discovery and a different sense of recommendation. Do you sense that that's happening? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I sympathize with that completely. You know, I mean, I I'd rather from... you tell me a wine that you're yeah. excited about than look at a book and see it's that. It's gone from magazine editors to your favorite DJ. I, I would like Thomas to say to me, here's my favorite Pinot and vintage. And I would know, you know, that that's a killer wine and all of that. You agree? Uh, absolutely. I think that, you know... Um, Within the community, there's a, a huge spread of kind of philosophies and um, and appreciations for wine. And I'd rather take a, a recommendation from somebody who I know has a palate and a uh, wine aesthetic that that is similar right. to mine than to someone who I've never met and I don't know uh, who's who's a you know assigning a, a number to something that I they don't really have a lot of co- personal context for. Right. Can I talk to you guys about? I do a show out of Brooklyn. And Brooklyn is definitely ground zero for, like, Hipsterville. We're actually in Brooklyn in two truck containers behind a pizzeria. That's where we do our show. And there, in, I think, October, November, a woman named Isabel Legeron brought the raw wine movement to Brooklyn, and she brought in about 200 natural, organic, biodynamic wine people. Do you feel sort of a current of that kind of wine coming on and Thomas from a winemaker's point of view Femi I'll start with you I mean do you feel you have to carry more or people asking is there a buzz so my philosophy about that is that I think it's interesting that people are doing it but uh, at the end of the day uh, to me it's very simple either the wine is good or it's not 
Um, you know, if if the wine making methods are not you know atrocious, then not the label. If it's good or not. If it's, it's good wine, or it's not. not you know, I, right. I love the idea of natural wine, but I think that sometimes you're doing something that's in detriment to the guest. You know, you're trying to force them to like something because it's made in a particular way. And I think that when you do that and you you ride that that wave, essentially, you might put people off to wine. They might think that wine geeks actually just like bad wine. You know, um, and uh, so I think the most important thing, you know, as wine professionals and sommeliers and, and whatever and whatnot, I think you need to find wines that. Okay, if they're made sustainably, fine, but make sure they're delicious first. So for me, the first thing that's always the most important is how fantastic is this wine? And uh, right. you know, I'm also interested in seeing how it's made as well. So basically what Femi is saying cryptically is F natural wines. No, no, I'll take responsibility for that. Rick, any feeling towards that? No, I very much... Because you're, and this is not a knock for any, you know, because you're playing a mind. You're a very traditional wine seller. Yes. And that's your clientele, and that's important. So but you have to hear or feel things going on with that. New trends come and go, and what you're talking about, uh, uh, about the uh, democratization of wine, kind of speaks to that point where you see this boom and bust situation happening more and more, where everybody kind of jumps onto the bandwagon and it disappears just as fast fads come and go a lot quicker than ever before in the wine world which is great for discovery because you're seeing so many more things but at the same time is everybody you know grounded in the same classics and you know so there's less of that um and i think or or not organics but natural wine as long as it's helping make a better wine, great. Right. But if it's organic, it's or about if it's the wine, natural not wine, the, the, uh, for natural title. sake, right. just to help market it, really, is that better? Uh, you know, the wine will set you free. Taste now, it. Now, Decide. Morgan, you may be a little more in between because of the type of restaurant, the food, the program. Tell me where you're at with that. Yeah, um, I think, again, at the end of the day, if the wine isn't good, then the efforts to get it to the table or in the bottle um, are for naught. You know, um, if, if you can produce a wine that is sound and balanced and is complementary to, uh, to food or just delicious to drink, then uh, and, and you can do that by being a, an excellent steward of the land and non-interventionist in the, in the winery, then, then like, you know, big high five um, because it doesn't always come out that way. Right. Um, so, you know, not all natural wine is evil, but not all natural wine is delicious. And, right. uh, and being selective and, and mindful of, you know, the fact that it's, it's a buzz word or a buzz term at the moment. Well, the funny thing in Manhattan and even in Brooklyn, there are wine stores and wine bars just dedicated to that. You right. Know? So, I mean, it sort of hit the ground. Now, Thomas... Morgan said something, and you and I had talked earlier, and it sort of plays to this in your own way. Your approach to wine is somewhat of a non-interventionist position. Now, I don't know if that's natural, organic, biodynamic, but I think it's a style of making wine that takes into consideration, sustainability, all of that stuff. I mean, what's your feeling towards that whole thing? So, I mean, we're given what we do, we're judged by the quality of our raw material. So for us, it's all about the grapes. So whatever farming process is going to give us the highest quality. About the grapes? About the grapes? I'll leave that to Femi. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, I mean, so we're we're big fans of organic farming. It has a Darwinian aspect. The the weaker fruit is not propped up by any conventional process, so it sort of dies on the vine. And what what comes in the winery is the strongest possible fruit. And then we talked about non-interventionist winemaking earlier staying out of the way as much as we can, but we're also not going to let something go to pot just because we believe sulfur is evil. So, I mean, we're happy to add a little sulfur if it stabilizes the wine because I think all three of these guys said the same thing. It's it's ultimately about what's in the bottle. I support you on that. 
All right, we're going to wrap the show up soon, but I do a thing on my show, The Grape Nation. I do a thing called The Wine List, and I ask all my guests a bunch of questions because I'm curious what the experts are doing and drinking. So I'm going to ask the same question to each of you. Don't spend too much time on it. It's more like a lightning round. So I'll start with Femi. We'll go Rick, Thomas, and Morgan. What are you drinking now? What's the thing you're enjoying trying that you weren't a month ago? And you'll that I wasn't a month ago. Um, what am I drinking now? Uh, See, you've I, taken too long already. Bam! Uh, Sicily. Sicily, Edna very Rosso. hot. Edna Rosso. Love Edna Rosso, yeah, Edna? absolutely. Okay, Rick? Bubbles. Anytime I can get them, champagne, a little Barneau, uh, rosé authentique that we brought today. And anytime so I let me tell it. you this. Bubbles is never the wrong answer. Bubbles. So just that. All right, Thomas, outside of, you know, all your clients and all of that, there's something you're tasting, drinking, or, you know, a little out of the uh, box. Well, so the there's a gener- generational change happening in Burgundy. Um, so things like Du Rocher and Gevry and Felatig and Chambois, there's some kids there that are taking some over young, for their right. parents, making some amazing wines and rehabbing some... Uh, uh, Educate me for a second. Estates. It's not all expensive, right? I mean, some of them are more value. No, it, start, it starts incredibly uh, cheap. I mean, the Du Rocher Village Gevries are 35 40 right. bucks. Morgan? Um, the Loire. Um, Loire? Shannon? Yeah, Shannon, lots of Shannon. Okay. But, but you know, Muscadet and, and Cab Franc and, and just kind of all the little facets that are that region. Great choices. All right, Femi, favorite wine and food pairing? Favorite wine and food pairing. Uh, Cru Beaujolais and burgers. Good one. Rick? Trimbach, Cuvée, Frederick, email, Riesling with the... Um, Can you get more specific? Sweetbreads. Bre- sweet Sweetbreads. That could be a first on the show. <laughs> Riesling and sweetbreads. Give um, me your favorite wine. O- and- old Barolo and white truffles. And white truffles? Yeah. On pasta or... Uh, simpler the or better. Or you just bite the truffle so like hard, an apple? Hard scrambled eggs and homemade pasta. There you go. That's the classic yeah. presentation. Morgan? Uh, Blanc de Blanc, champagne, and popcorn. You're the second person <laughs> on the show who said popcorn. Yeah. I think Karen McNeil, who wrote the wine Bible, said the same thing. Yeah. Well, wait, what was the champagne? Just any Blanc de Blanc. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. All right. So, <laughs> favorite wine restaurant and or bar. So... Femi and Rick, stay with Charleston. You know, you're not going to get yourself in trouble. Thomas, give me a place in Napa. And Morgan, you do Charleston, too. So give me uh, somebody who's doing it well besides you guys. Besides us. Yeah. Does this mean this panel as well? or? Yeah. Okay. Uh, in Charleston. Edmonds Oast. Edmonds Oast. Big beer thing. Cool. Rick? I would have to say um, and, Fig. And, who? Fig. Fig? Oh. Okay. Is that okay if I Thanks, save right? her rest? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now tell me, I think you may have answered this question. Give me a good wine and bar so restaurant. I'll have, to, I'll have to go back a little ways. The place I started all seasons in Calistoga, the owner there has the greatest collection of old California wines I've ever seen. It's called All Seasons? All Seasons. And he throws them out for almost no money. So he's got some great library Amazing. Wine. 60s and 70s. Anything you want to drink is in his cellar somewhere. All right. So Morgan... You don't have to say Charleston Place, but you. All right, so I'll answer for you. So Charleston Place and um, on maybe a different end of the spectrum, other than Charleston Place, um, Stems and Skins. Uh, Matt Tunstall. Yeah, yeah. Matt was on yesterday. He's pushing the natural wine. He is. Now, so. um, he is, and I, I, I like that he's he's getting in there. All right. Yeah. Two more questions. Favorite all-time wine. Femi, the wine that you drank, and it's like, boy, it's changed my life one way or another. Oh, man. 
Uh, Mike. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think it was the 96 Bill Carts Simone Grand Cuvée. 96 what? Okay, a champagne. Rick, Rick, you you better knock it out of the park because you've probably tasted and drank more wines than anyone. If I'm you, I'm going to say like a 1641 Madeira off the Santa Maria or the Pinta or whatever. No, I, this one, I, I'm not sure the validity back then. This was a number of years ago. It was a, a blind for a friend of mine's 40th uh, birthday party. Uh, he's very fortunate. And he did... 181865 uh, Latour. Wow. And we got to taste it blind. And I, How did it drink? I mean, it's historic in its tasting, but how did it drink? I guessed it, I guessed in the 60s, but I guessed 1960s. It was that wow. young and fresh. Impressive. But now with all the controversy, was it real, was it not? But, you know, he paid a lot for him. So, we'll see. nice. So, uh, Thomas? I'm going to cheat and give you a few. That's Se- fine. 70, I'm okay 70, with that. So, for white, 78 DRC Montreche. Um, I had an 85 Dujac Beaumar at the French Laundry. When they pulled the cork, the whole room filled the up Dujac, with the smell. Dujac, which one? The Dujac Beaumar 85. Um, 69 so you love those Chapelet. French wines. Yeah, 69 Chapelet for U.S. And then probably 71 Roque Reserva from Giacosa for Barola. Good one. Those are all good ones. Oh, man. Um, You've tasted enough stuff to I've, give me a legit I've answer. Come on stuff. here. So uh, it, was, it was the very beginning of kind of like me like dipping my toe into the, the world of, of, I guess, what was fine wine. And um, somebody poured me a splash of, of a Raffinot Chablis. I honestly don't even know the crew or the vintage, but I was like, what is in my glass? And, uh, and that kind of just got the ball rolling. All right. Yeah. All right. Thomas, you don't have to answer this one. But I always do this for my listeners. You guys, I just want you to dig deep. Think retail for a second, all right? Give me your best wine around 15 bucks. Give me a red and a white. Now, if you can't be specific, like Muscadet is a great value for a white for 15 But give me something. And, and Femi, you may have hit it earlier. Like the Sicilian wines are value priced. Yeah. Yeah. What, what can you... Like my son's 27. He's going out to visit some friends. He's bringing three bottles of wine. Doesn't have a lot of uh, yeah. um, dough. What's he buying? Well, uh, gosh, a lot of fun wines. Actually, uh, one that comes to mind is actually uh, drinks deliciously, nice and rich. Uh, Zweigelt from Austria. Zweigelt? Yeah, okay. Sattler makes a fantastic Zweigelt that's around $16, $17 retail, and it's amazing. Rick, give me something. Give me a red. Red is much harder, and, and you have... Give me a $15 red that you would bring to a... Gosh, $15 red... Retail. Retail. That's even tougher. Um, I'm totally drawing a blank right now. Uh, What'd you say? I'm totally drawing a blank right now. All right, we'll come back to you. Morgan. Um, you have to have stuff on the list for fifteen twenty that you're selling for forty fifty. <laughs> Is there anything you like there? Yeah, I, I think you know. You look to, to Beaujolais, you look to Etna, you look to the Loire, and you find great values. Um, I think that's where they are. Yeah, that's it. Um, so Beaujolais for, for sure. Some of the Loire. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And Thomas, I'll answer for you. We'll do a two thousand nine Schrader, fifteen yes. or under. Okay. <laughs> right. By the glass. Wow, fifteen bucks. I'll buy it all. All right, you guys. I want to thank all of you guys for coming out today and talking wine with us. 
coming out at the uh, Charleston Wine and Food Festival. I want to thank Femi. Oh, you Darren. Did I get that right? You're good. You're good. Rick Rubel, both from Charleston uh, Place, which is in the Belmont Hotel. Perfect, which yes. Which probably is the deepest wine list in town. In town, yes. If you're interested in going deep, I want to thank Thomas Rivers Brown. It's really nice to have a winemaker in our company, a guy that makes his own wine and is passionate about it, and a guy who's very passionate about making wine for 40 other people. I want to thank Morgan Calco. Morgan is the GM and beverage director at FIG. And I just before we go off, there's a few events going on. There's Thomas tonight has at Five Church a dinner where you'll be pouring wines. Mike Ladd is serving lunch right now at The Ordinary. Yes. And FIG had their signature dinner, signature on Thursday, dinner a couple yeah. of nights ago. And anything with you guys? Not right now. Just doing great business as usual. Come on in. All right, guys. Thank you. You've been listening to the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back in a few minutes with some more great programming today. This episode is brought to you by Big Green Egg, the world's largest producer of ceramic charcoal grills. In business since 1974, they've transformed ancient cooking vessels into modern-day masterpieces. Today, they sell seven sizes of the egg, as well as hundreds of accessories designed to make your cooking fun, entertaining, and delicious. Often copied but never equaled, the Big Green Egg is the ultimate cooking experience. Learn more at BigGreenEgg.com. This episode is also brought to you by Springer Mountain Farms, over 300 family farmers raising birds in Georgia's Blue Ridge Mountains. Many of them are second and even third generation. They're committed to doing things the right way. Springer was one of the first poultry companies to forego the use of antibiotics, and they've embraced other humane practices too. In fact, they were the first poultry company to earn the American Humane Association seal of approval. Learn more at springermountainfarms.com.